All right. Uh, ben just left with uh, two preschoolers and a Japan DVD, so things should go great out there. <laughs> hey, welcome everybody. Lord be with you. Thank you. Um, let me uh, open us in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. We have a lot of work to today. Um, let me pray for us. Let's be still. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are closer to us than we are to ourselves, and that in the language of silence, you make yourself known. Father, we long to commune with you by your spirit as your people today. So help us to be filled with all the fullness of God in this place. We ask this with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Come on in, you guys. Um, so I want to review because uh, we've slept and ate and um, done other things since our last class. I want to review, and then I want to set up uh, what we're doing today and double-click on another practice that goes with our theme of living a sacramental life to resist the secular heresy. So we started week one by contending that the goal of the Christian life is divine union or communion in love, right? So the goal is love, or the goal is divine union. And in order to illustrate that, we drew the grace and truth matrix. And we said that love is full of grace and truth. And there's other areas we can live in that have a form of godliness but deny their power. And they make us ultimately sad. So the, the uh, tool that went with uh, the goal of our life is divine union is grace and truth. Living full of grace and truth. Uh, participating in the quality of life that the Trinity has. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, secondly, uh, we said that God is always present and at work. So, um, yeah, God is always present and at work. And the practice here was detecting. Paying attention to God moments, or what we're calling Kairos moments, places where um, heaven and earth, uh, where, the, the, where the distance between the divine life and our life is thin. Now, uh, this isn't to say that um, Kairos moments uh, are uh, completely fill that. It's just to say that kairos moments are what we can perceive. And there's other places God's present at work that we can perceive. Um, there's a relationship between what we can perceive and not. But just suffice it to say is, uh, I think we're responsible for what we can perceive. So let's tend to that. Let's start there and see what else God shows us. Um, third, God is just like Jesus. 
that there's a whole lot of gods we can believe in and trust, and including we can use scriptures to create any sorts of any sort of god we want. Uh, but Jesus is the fullest revelation of God, the exact representation of his being. And so God is like Jesus. And then the practices we talked about in this were discern and declare. It's hard to write sideways. We want uh, that, that Kairos moments are opportunities for us to repent and believe, to become more fully aligned with the kingdom of God. And so we discern in uh, our relationship with Christ, where, where are we living out of accordance with love? How are we living in ways against love? And we declare love over that and that uh, opportunity to repent and believe. And then last week, we talked about uh, four, that God is so real, he most fully meets us where we really are. So God meets us in reality. And we taught the, the word works once to all. So instead of drawing that, I'll just do this. That we like, we've inherited a spirituality that keeps us in our minds and in our uh, actions. But Jesus actually works to help people name and own what they want, what their desires are. Um, all of these phrases, again, just, just to reiterate, they're the ways we see, they're assumptions we see Jesus making about reality and God. They seem to be the way that Jesus lived. Number one. Number two, they seem to challenge us from a standpoint of, they challenge a secular way of living. They challenge the dominant imagination we have, not just as humans, but even as Christians, for, for what, what makes for the good life. So, for instance, God meets us in reality. The secular heresy would be God meets us in our spiritual life. God meets you in your quiet times, in your DNA groups. God, God is sovereign over spiritual affairs. Um, but the reality is, God is always present at work. So he meets us in real life, which is the only life we have. It's the only life he has access to. So the secular heresy then wants to take God out of real life, out of like being hungry or tired or in pain this morning, not wanting to be here, and saying, if I can just get over that, then I can listen to Father Matt and, and be with God. Rather, no. God meets you right there, real life, what you can perceive. All right, so all this to say, today we're going to... Well, let me put this together for us, because we are, we are trying to make this uh, simple, and we are trying to help bring, um, 
trying to hold it all together. It's hard, it's hard for us to hold things all together unless we're, you know, uh, a genius. Like an Albert Einstein or a C.S. Lewis. These people can hold lots of things in their heads without the benefit of uh, pictures, which is why we're drawing pictures. We tend to be a visual culture. We tend to remember things visually. So, um, so we talked about how word works once is the way that Jesus loves people. Meaning, bringing alignment between what people think, what people do, and what people desire is loving. And then we suggested that the practices of love are the practices we've been talking about here. Right? So helping people become aware of detecting chaos moments. We talked about discerning desire or discerning what we want or discerning what's motivating us. Is it full of the kingdom or is it bad news? Is it actually a lie or something knowledge set up against God? And then declaring the reality of Jesus' kingship. There's at least a seven-week class, friends, in maybe naming what is the gospel for us. Or maybe uh, getting out all the ways we've learned things that we assume are the gospel that aren't. But this isn't that class, unfortunately. So we can ask, we can talk about that if you have questions. Today, I want to double-click on this Practice. The practice that gets us between detect and discern is the practice of digging. I want to jump in on that. And the axiom that goes with that is our fifth. Is it five? Yes. The fifth axiom. Here's our axiom for today. God cares about it. Uh, let's say all of it. But not more than we do, right? More oh. than we do. <laughs> God cares about all of it more than we do. Okay, I have some scriptures. Uh, give me your hand if you want to read a scripture for us. Uh, Isaiah, Romans 2, 1 through 4. Just look that up and be ready in a bit. Joel, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Nancy, Acts 3, 1 through 7. Carlo, Mark 10, 21. I need some more. More peeps. Any more peeps? Yeah, Andy. Uh, Luke 22, 61. Let's see. Is that enough? I got one more scripture. Who wants it? Yeah, it's not short. No. <laughs> no. Carlo, you got it again? Double up. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. All right, friends. Um... Remember, uh, this, these practices we're talking about and this process of aligning our words, works, and wants is how love lives. 
So we're in the business of naming what love is. Otherwise, it's an abstract sentiment. Otherwise, we're memorizing a definition and trying harder to live up to that ideal. And that's never worked for me. Maybe that's worked for you, but that's, that's not livable enough. So, some things about Jesus' love. And the reason why this is an axiom, God cares about it, all of it, more than we do. One of the things that strikes me about Jesus is that he, he loves people in non-coercive, non-manipulative ways. If anyone could get a vision of the good and make people comport to it, it would be Jesus. And we don't see him doing that. Non-coercive, non-manipulative way. He doesn't force or manipulate people unto good ends. So the the uh, the ends don't justify the means for for Jesus. So something about how Jesus loves people. creates space for them to say yes or no to love. To say, to, it reveals or hides depending upon their participation. Love is uncontrolling and empowering of others. Love is uncontrolling and empowering of other people. And so, again, I, I want to... So, so that's like the 20,000 feet here. But how do we learn how to love like that? Well, yeah, Carla, you have an idea for us? No, you want to team? Okay. Yes. And our greatest sin is rejecting that ultimate sovereignty. Like, wouldn't it make the most sense in the world to just like, look, compel high water, we're going to save all creation by just getting you back under, like, my sovereignty? Yes. And the fact that Jesus doesn't see that end as just fun to me, you know, yes. you just killed one child, there will never be any more hurt or sin or harm in the world. Right. Seems selfish for you, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it seems like, like the, how powerful this is really hitting me, yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so you're, so you're thinking through, like, if, if Jesus just, if God wants everyone just to affirm and submit to his sovereignty, it seems like it would be a fairly easy thing for him to do. It, it seems that he would, he would put away the violent options so or the coercive options. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of things to say about that. Maybe I'll just say two things. One, one is uh, the way we see God operating in Jesus with us 
reveals what his ultimate goal is. His ultimate goal is that he can share his power and entrust it to us as much as possible. Dallas Willard says it like this. God's ultimate goal for every person is that he can empower them to do whatever it is they want. One other way to say this is, God's creative purposes for humankind was to be images, icons, representations of his power and authority and love. And to help God administrate and rule over his creation. We compromise that by giving allegiance to other gods. And God is committed to his created design. being fulfilled. So Jesus can't wait to give away his power in the Gospels. In fact, he gives it to people who doubt in Matthew 28. So his goal then isn't conformity or obedience. His goal is empowered agents who look like him. His goal is, this is love, to share the goodness and strength and power with as many who can possibly stand it. <laughs> so you have Peter, who's got some issues, right? Like, you know, he's got way more confidence than maybe is appropriate. His character can bear. He's got some biases and prejudices that will undo him. Um, but Jesus is ruthless about sharing power with them and commissioning him and calling him into things. And so there's a way of doing that that's helpful because it continually calls Peter into more faithfulness. But then you have like Simon Magus in Acts 8. Okay. Yeah. Who is wanting God power to use it for himself. And it's not helpful for him to give it to him. Right? So there's a discernment there about how love empowers and gives. But God's ultimate desire is for people to participate in his love by helping him rule. Which is nuts though. I mean, that's not how I'd be God. But that's how our God is. I didn't just, I mean, I just did call God nuts, but I was using it colloquially. Let the listener understand. Um, So how do we love like this? How do we love in an uncontrolling way? How do we learn how to participate in the life of God together with other people and not take everything like it's all up to us? Right? So we got these phrases like, well, you just let go and let God. Which again, sounds like really good or 20,000 feet. You're like, you know, patting your heart and singing some Chris Tomlin. But how do you actually do that? How do you actually let go and let God? And is that the best metaphor to use to describe either I'm a control freak or I'm passively checked out? Right. Those are the two ditches, right? What about like Jesus take the wheel? Jesus take the wheel. 
I got this meme. I got this meme of this old, this old guy, this old guy in an old car, like 1920s, and he's rounding a corner, and and one of his wheels is like flying off, and his face is like, and it says, "Not that wheel, Jesus." <laughs> um, I do love that. All right, so here's what I here's what we're gonna do today, and we'll have some conversation around these. Um, but Jesus, one of the ways Jesus shows us how to trust God's care in things that matter is through this practice of digging with other people. Nobody wants people to be saved worse than Jesus. Amen? Amen. I don't care how much you care for the lost. You don't care for them a fraction of how Jesus cared for them. And when Jesus encountered people who needed his kingship to deliver them from evil, death, sin, destruction, idolatry, this is how he loved them. There may be more ways. These are, I want to propose five ways. Uh, The first is, is that he dealt with them with compassion. Who did I give Romans 2, 1 through 4 to? Yeah, Isaiah, will you read that for us? Uh, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is true. Now, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Great. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Who had Matthew 7? All right, Joel. One through five. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. I've gone too far. We didn't need to hear about dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe every reading today should just end with, do not give to the dogs what is sacred. (laughs) Just as a reminder, uh, we're going to actually read about the dogs in a little bit. Um, Matthew's... Isaiah's was Romans 2, 1 through 4, and Joel's was Matthew 7, 1 through 6a. 6a. (laughs) Friends, uh, one one of the ways that we tend to God's activity so that we learn to trust God cares about it more than we do is that we bring compassion to whatever it is. Not contempt. Not, no, I'm sorry, not condemnation. 
serious religious people. If you're at Sunday school on a Sunday morning, you may be a serious religious person. Those of us who are serious religious people, we tend to bring judgments. First, compassion second. I'm just blown away. Like all, like all the people that Jesus deals with in Scripture, if there was ever someone, we'll talk more about how Jesus' divinity and humanity related. If there was ever someone who could, who could hear a question or look at a person and bring them the truth, it was Jesus. Make a judgment about where they are and name it for them and then say, this is how you get in line with him. And what we see happening over and over with Jesus is that he brought compassion to people who were responsive to compassion. So he asked questions. He was, he was a question asker. And he asked questions not to win or corner or defeat, but to make space so people could experience compassion. This is love seeking the good restoration and redemption of everyone. Yes. It was that same. So you just said that what Jesus did, he asked questions, but he also listened well. Yes. This gets, I think, listening. Um, So I'm going to put, there's actually five C's because why not? And the second C speaks really uh, closely to what you just said, which is we also see the way that Jesus opened this space for love was through connection. Who has that Acts passage? Acts 3. Three one, 1 through 7, Nancy. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, we can say this, but anyway, silver or gold, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I do, I have, what, do, what I do have I given you. What I do have I given you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up instantly. The feet and ankles became strong. Yes. Uh, thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. Um, Miss Nethercott, do we have to separate you and Carlo? <laughs> uh, Mark? Yes, you are. You guys share. Mark ten twenty one. Sell what you own and get the money to the poor and your treasure in heaven. 
Yes. Luke twenty two sixty one. Sorry. I'm curious if there is a verse sixty one in Luke twenty two. I may have written this down incorrectly. It's twenty one. There is not. Maybe twenty two. <laughs> yeah, there is a sixty one. This is Jesus's trial. Uh, at that moment, the Lord turned toward, turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know. Yeah. So, friends, there's this, there's this aesthetic or this, this thing that happens over and over in the Gospels, and we see the uh, apostles participating in it too, of um, Jesus radically and humanly connecting with people. Um, that moment of Jesus looking at Peter after he's denied him three times and then Peter remembering what Jesus said. It's one of those moments in scripture I wish I was, I wish I was there for. I wish I, 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 uh, I think I used to see that look of Jesus like full of sort of contempt and frustration. And now I see it as full of compassion. And knowing that Peter needs Jesus at that moment to be with him. Um, similarly, with the rich young ruler, uh, yeah. what you read, Katie, about how he, uh, he's, he's coming to Jesus with this kairos he's having. And Jesus continually, and we'll get to another, we'll get to uh, more of these sees. Jesus asks this man to be curious about why he's calling him good. And, and what, what commands have you followed? Um, and then we see Jesus looking at him and loving him. We're, we're only told twice in the Gospels that Jesus loves somebody. Which is fascinating. Once is here and once is with um, Mary and Martha in John 11. But he loves him. And he calls him in. Gives him good news. And then the passage you read, which is the first miracle in Acts. This is the first miracle... And, and there is all this, uh, look at us. And he looked at them, and they stared at him. And there's like this connection. So one of the ways that Jesus communicates, I'm with you, I'm for you, is by looking at people. In the eyes. I see you. Also, he listens, like Nancy was just mentioning. So he communicates connection through through eye contact, through listening. He probably made empathetic noises. Are you projecting? He, uh... <laughs> 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 he, he, uh... He, he was uh, fastidious about touch. He touched people that no one else would touch. And he touched people in private... Intimate spaces. We pull people away from crowds and spit on their eyes, touch them. He. So the way. So so one of the ways we learn how to care about this in a faithful way is to take the time to connect with people. 
connect with others. It's completely inefficient. Some of us do this really well, like falling out of bed, and some of us are awful at this. You, you may know already where you fall in that. This is, the connection is actually undoing some of the bad news that's at work in our relationships. Many of us experience not connection from other people, not I see you, I'm with you, I'm really glad you shared that, and here's what you said, and I'm, I'm taking it to heart and appreciating it. What we experience when we share things, or just in normal life, is a distancing, or a minimizing, or a dismissing. Can you guys relate to that? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I was, uh, I was sharing, uh, so some of you know the story about how the table came to be and how we ended up here, but I was sharing that story with a close family member several years ago when I first moved back to Indianapolis. And I was sharing about, I spent, ben and I, I spent 10 months down in South Carolina working for a parachurch ministry, and it ended really bad, and I went, I've, I'm still in counseling for it, and uh, it was rough. And I'm sharing this with a close family member who knew I had moved home, but they didn't know all the details of the story. And as I shared the details of the story, uh, their response to me was, you know, and this, I mean, I was, uh, I was, I was emotionally uh, verklempt a bit. And um, the response was, see, this is why I thought you never should have gone down there. In that moment, I was like, oh, yeah, this is why I haven't told you about this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but I, I don't think that's out of the ordinary. This, this family member dearly loved me, was not trying to hurt me. This is just how, this is just what we know how to do. So we have to name how connection works, because if we don't, the minimizing, the distancing, and the dismissing that we're practiced into continues. Does that make sense, you guys? So Jesus, Jesus practiced a trust that God cares more about it than him by giving himself over to compassion and connection with other people. The third one is that he dealt in concreteness. Actual situations and relationships. Um, people, people were... People were asking him to have abstract theological conversations with him all the time. And he just had little interest in that. The people that he had the most substantial backs and forths with tended to be those who had actual real-life situations they were dealing with. So... The way that we practice this, friends, is we want to get as discreet and particular and specific as possible when we tend to God's activity. 
I feel really distant from God right now. That conversation could go, well, you know, distance is an interesting word. Right. Or here's six verses that talk about God's nearness. Which is, which uh, (laughs) isn't concrete enough. So we get concrete by how do you know you're distant from God? What does that feel like? How? What are some of the indications in your life that God seems to... Sometimes I struggle with being patient. Oh, yeah? Well, sometimes I ask questions to help you name. When's the last time you struggled being patient? <laughs> we get concrete, particular, specific. Maybe, maybe it's like, I've had a good, I've had a good week. No, no kairoses, really. That, that actually is a kairos that you haven't had. That got, <laughs> no, how do you know you haven't had any kairoses? Jesus continually meets people in nitty-gritty, real-life, everyday places. Concrete, contextual places. So we have compassion, not contempt. Connection, not dismissal or distance. And we've got concreteness, not abstractions. Friends, I'm reading a book right now on what pistis, faith, means. It's all about conceptual theological stuff. It's not that I don't care about that. I care deeply about it. It's just, it's really hard to meet God in abstractions. It's part of the secular heresy. All right, two more, and then let's chat a bit. You guys can end up jumping at any time, too. The fourth is Jesus practices curiosity. Not control. Uh, who's got Matthew 15, 21 through 28? Carlo, would you read that for us? That one time when Jesus called a woman a dog. Yeah. I told you we'd get back to the dogs. I'm writing a paper on this right now. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Friends, uh, Jesus is a master at holding open space for people to learn and discover.
This is what love does. Love honors the personhood and integrity of its object. Engages them with honor and, and actually submits to their agency rather than overwhelm or tries to control their agency. So I came to faith. So Jesus practices curiosity when he digs with people rather than control. I came to faith with the understanding that Jesus went through his earthly life being coy about his omniscience. You know what I mean by that? That Jesus, Jesus always had the God card that he held behind his back. And he pretended like he didn't have it. But then once in a while he'd play it. That's, that's how I thought about Jesus. Like, what he did and what he knew, he did and knew because of he was divinity. And he pretended like he wasn't divine a lot of the time. But then some of the time, he would be like, but I'm God. And let people have it. Yeah. Because I didn't remember it. feels that way too. So what do you do with Mark, the gospel of Mark? He always tells people, don't want to be raised. Don't want to be raised. It seems really secretive. Oh, I see. By the way, guys. Oh, I see. <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's a uh, that's another dynamic where you could describe it as being coy. Uh, and we I, just just quickly, Je- Jesus in the Gospel of Mark was really aware that what people meant by Messiah and what they expected from a king isn't what he was about. And so, in order that, you know, like in, uh, in John chapter 6, where we're told they were going to come and seize him and make him king, and then Jesus was like, I'm out of here. Like, all through Mark, we see Mark bringing out that theme of, until Jesus was really clear about the cross and about being handed over to the Gentiles, no one could talk about him being a Messiah. So when you have in Mark's... Uh, the story of Peter, of, of him asking who the people say I am. Peter says, well, you're the, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the, and Jesus says, get, get behind me, Satan. He's, because he knows what that means. Mm. Peter, it's mm. like, I mean, you don't tell him to get behind you, Satan, until Peter, he says, okay, you're right. But now I got to Yeah, this is what I got to do now. And he's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't get what, you don't get what. That's the linchpin of Mark's, yeah. go- that's the turn of Mark's gospel. What I mean by coy, though, Carlo, is the sense of um, uh, go call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't. <laughs> Slam! You have whatever, how many husbands? Yeah. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, what you're saying. So, like, the idea of like, a parent is like, all right, we'll give everybody a vote, and the kids, like, they vote for something that the parents didn't want, and they're like, all right, well, by the way, I'm a parent, so your vote's on Slam, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's, I don't think that's the most helpful way to think about how Jesus inhabited his body. Jesus seems to, he confesses to not knowing things. We're told in Luke 2 that he learns twice. 
He investigates and discovers. He's observant because he's ruthless about connecting with people because he knows, because he's probably the, I mean, this might not be that uh, speculative, but I'll say it speculatively. He's probably the best psychologist who ever lived. Meaning, he knows people really well. He's really observant. Um, love, love holds open space of appreciation and wonder and discovery. So, so this text in Matthew 15 that you read, Carlo, um, vexes a lot of people. Um, but I, I'm persuaded that I hear Jesus pulling out two anti-Gentile tropes to the disciples. And he speaks them to them. He speaks those tropes to those people. It's really clear, Matthew tells us. I only came to the lost sheep of Israel. Because the disciples are telling Jesus, make this lady shut up. And he doesn't say yes or no, does he? He just says, yeah, I came to the lost sheep of Israel. And then she comes up begging, please, Lord, have mercy on me. And he says, again, it's not right to give, you know, bread to the dogs. These are, these are anti-Gentile tropes. So he would be like quoting something that the, the disciples might have even said. That's how I understand this. Sean. If he's uh, fully human, could he have a bad day? Yeah. If, I think... you, if you read Mark's version of the story, it's even more vexing. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, so, so here's the deal. Well, here's what I'm saying. But, yeah, so there's... Is there places in the text where our Lord could really not have sounded really nice? There's two. There's. I think there's two possibilities, Sean. I think one is is that um, I see Jesus saying these things with sort of a smile, and and kind of like like provoking to see what will happen here. I think I think he knows when people have a sincere faith and when it's false, and I think he's looking to see a sincere faith meet a sincere prejudice, and to see what happens. But I think the other option would be Jesus is learning about the faith of Gentiles. Or it could be both. I mean, it only scandalizes us because we have this idea that, that Jesus didn't learn and grow and develop. Which we're told explicitly in Scripture he did. I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Katie. I think from the woman's perspective, he might have known that she, for whatever reason, needed to push through and, mm. and press in. Mm. And he was like, just like the woman at the well. Mm. I see that as you know, a delightful exchange yeah. between him and that woman. Yeah. Yeah. Him, but with a smile on his face and all that. I mean, I really do. As, as a 
you know. And I think that in this situation, I've always thought that she needed to push in for her faith, and he needed to teach the disciples about the fact that this woman had faith. Yes. And so he, he risked it. Yeah. I think, I think, Katie, you're right. I think the question is, and the good question that Sean brings up is, are two groups of people learning here or are three? And I don't know, I don't know how much Jesus knows at the beginning of this and how much he learns, but I'm, I'm open to that. Yeah, Isaiah. Just like the first thing that pops in my head there when you say that maybe Jesus learned in this situation. Like, I don't necessarily have a problem with Jesus learning. Like, I think it's pretty clear he does. But that, like, we know in theory he was about sin. Right? Mm-hmm. And some, and I choose the way I see sin is not that uh, it's all intention, it's that there's sin that you can commit even though you don't know it. And it feels like racism would be absolutely one of those. And so Jesus is learning about racism, like, oh man, I was kind of racist there. That, like, at least for me, it like, bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, what's interesting about that is that this is. This is a whole different seven-week class. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But uh, ethnic bias and prejudice, or, I mean, racism is actually, I don't want to be a nerd, but I, I, I would contend that racism is actually a, um, uh, the word is escaping me. It's a term that didn't exist in Jesus' day. Race is a construct didn't exist the way race as a construct exists now. But personal prejudice and animus or corporate prejudice and animus against other people groups definitely existed, has existed at least since sheep herders and farmers uh, went after it in Genesis 4. Um, <laughs> right? At least. Um, uh, so I'll say this. This is a seventh class. God reveals... I had this conversation with somebody who cornered me about uh, how much time we got. Uh, I had this conversation with a priest in my diocese who cornered me at an event about four months ago uh, to talk to me about homosexuality. And it was like, I just met the guy, and then he immediately jumps into this question about homosexuality. And so part of me was like, we were at a, we were at a pub, and I had had like, 13 ounces of beer. So I was like, that's, all, that's really all I need to be like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> uh, but he was like, he was like, I, I was asking lots of questions about how do we handle human sexuality in the church, and I was getting conversations going at this diocesan event. And I think he had caught wind of it, and he wanted to kind of let me have it. And, and at some point, like, uh, I just threw out to him, like, you know, let's just grant that, like, the traditional of human sexuality, the traditional understanding of human sexuality is true. Uh, What does that mean for for our gay Christians who profess Jesus? And I said, uh, you know, can they be people out of their God's own heart? And he was kind of just frothing and foaming and spitting. You know, and I just said, well, I, I just don't read scripture like that. I said, God, God, God is a God who accommodates all through scripture so that God can call, like, an adulterous 
murderous, rapist, polygamist, we should probably add some more, like King David, mm-hmm. who maybe we could say repented of adultery. Mm, no. no, repented of rape, mm, kind of. Repented of murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, repented of murder, but not really rape, and not adultery because he was a polygamist until he died. If that guy can be a God, guy after God's own heart, who, who can't be? So, so God's always been a comedy. He, he did not like that observation. Is that right? He didn't like it. The reason I bring it up is because for a long time in Israel's scriptures, it was presumed and assumed and certain streams taught that hatred of the Gentiles was faithful. Zeal, that's zeal for the law, right? And so I see this very real incarnational give and take in Israel's scriptures happening where God is accommodating to current cultural norms, working within them, and calling people into a greater faithfulness at the same time. I mentioned, I mentioned two that are kind of hot button topics, but I could mention two dozen more. Yeah. Like Jesus actually says this, God let you have divorce. Because of your hard heart. Not because it was his ideal. And the conversation with this guy, he couldn't get past, well, God has a holy standard and he has to maintain it. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, you can have that God. Or you can have the God we see revealed in scripture. I'm not sure you can have both. <laughs> like, I'm going to go with like, the one I see actually interacting with people. Yeah. So, th- so, let's just say, let's just say for sake of discussion, this isn't, I don't think I would... I'm not persuaded of this, and I wouldn't argue this. But let's just say for sake of discussion that Jesus was inhabiting the dominant Israelite paradigm at the time of uh, that it was holy and just and right to despise Gentiles. We, we call that a sin. I, I don't know if it's proper to say that it was a sin for Jesus. I don't know. I think it creates, it's interesting conversation, but it creates questions. I, I did consider not having this text read just because I knew it would be way too interesting. <laughs> way too interesting and fascinating conversations for us. Yeah. Well, you don't see, you don't see, it's not how we see Jesus interacting with Gentiles all the time either. But there's the history between Syrophoenician people and Canaanites. Jewish people. That's, I mean, it's the Canaanites. It's a huge thing. It's the Canaanites. And Canaanites weren't just ultra specially bad Gentiles. Canaanites were, there was a whole mythology around that their genealogy, they were descended from the rival gods who had compromised Yahweh's reign. Yep, Sean, and then Nancy. And then Spencer. I brought up that thought of the reason why Jesus could have a bad day. Can I worship a Jesus who was not perfect in love? Mm. Can I love my father on earth who is not perfect in love? Yeah. I love my father. He has some imperfections. 
yeah. I have perfection. My children who love me. Um, Jesus is, for me, the most loving being who has ever walked this planet. Mm-hmm. He is the model of love. Mm-hmm. But in my my understanding and recovery and addiction and understanding all or nothing thinking mm-hmm. that sometimes I think we fall into in Scripture, it's all or nothing. Yeah. And he has to be absolutely perfect for me to to love him or to worship him. And in that, I think sometimes it hinders us from being able to be free to look at this humanity. Yeah, yeah. Um, that he could be human. Yeah. Um, I think we're frightened of that. That's only, I'm not saying you are. Um, but yet at the same time, I affirm that he is the most loving, I believe. He's my model. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think we, this is part of what I was pushing back earlier on with like the God card being held behind the back, that Jesus was just pretending to be human. And, and you know, what Scripture tells us is that he actually emptied himself of all divinity uh, in the incarnation. And then the turn that Paul makes in that in Philippians 2, and we see this elsewhere, is that's actually how God really is. That God is this canonic, emptying God. God empties himself into creation, into Jesus. Jesus empties himself of God as Jesus. And so, yeah, I think we, I think the humanity of Jesus makes us uncomfortable for two reasons. One, we're like, well, we can't really say he sinned. And two, because everything Jesus did, we have access to. Both those things terrify us. Because the God card's convenient. I mean, I've, I've led trainings in churches, uh, and, and we get to places like this, and, and people raise their hands like, well, ah, but Jesus was God, and I'm not. That lets me off the hook. And I don't see any place in the New Testament where any New Testament writer makes that argument. In fact, they explicitly state the other thing. Be imitators of God as his beloved children, and walk in love. Be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus. People actually thought Jesus was the prototype. Jesus says, you'll do greater things than me. And freak, that freaks us out. That freaks us out. So, friends, curiosity. I want to wrap this up so we can not be in here all through uh, Eucharist. <laughs> curiosity frees us from the need to, i got to figure this out. Oh, gosh, Deacon just shared a cars with me, and uh, I'm his dad, and if I don't help him figure this out, then uh, he's not going to become a Christian, he's going to grow up, and he's going to become, I don't know, fill in the blank. <laughs> Whoever's your Syrophoenician woman, he's going to become that. <laughs> so, so curiosity helps us with the freedom to simply come alongside people and be curious about what they're dealing with. I wonder what God is up to here. We go from having to analyze and determine to being able to appreciate and discern. Inhabiting true curiosity. That's not feigned. It's not a game. There's 
It goes from pressure to help. Oh, I'm the pastor. I better have answers here. To just being present for people. Pressure's off. Finally, number five is courage. Courage, not fear. Jesus called people into reckoning with reality, and that can be terrifying. And there can be a lot of fear that if we actually tend to what's really going on, that it'll overwhelm us, or we'll succumb to it, or we won't have the answers, or God will be absent. And so we take heart. We, we, we do not be afraid. So these five C's, compassion, connection, concreteness, curiosity, and courage, are how we practice being present to people and learn how to trust that God cares about it more than we do. Yeah, Carl. In Matthew and Luke, there's a section where Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and it seems that like, there's, a, there's like two conversations going on, right? So he has the Pharisees, and he has like waves of like, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, and the Sadducees, and then like different like, groups that come and are asking these questions. And it seems that when they're asking them these questions, he's like answering with like the five C's, but then they're finished, and they can't think of anything else to ask him, and then he kind of goes off and declares all these woes on them. Yeah. And in that, there's not as much like, hmm, all right, let's sit here and think, like, why are you guys acting like that? He's like, you guys are messed up, all right? It's going to come down, it's going to fall on your heads, and yeah. you guys aren't going to see it coming. And like, you know, I told you about it, and then when it comes, it's going to bite you. You know, like, very, very, like, in yeah. your face, yeah. not teaching this anymore. Yeah. So, was he just finished? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, the, question, the question is basically like, okay, I can see this with Jesus' regular interactions with people, but what about Matthew 23 and 24 and 25, where Jesus just lets her rip and says, uh, woe to you, here's who you are. <coughs> A few observations about that. Um, uh, I, I think love tells the truth about reality. And um, and Jesus had days or weeks left of his life. So there is a decided there's a there's a decided posture with the religious leaders of getting them to wake up, question their questions, wonder with him about why they're doing what they're doing for years. Years. And then what we see towards the end is that Jesus announces what they seem to have decided. So Jesus doesn't curse them, sort of like a Harry Potter wand. Rather, he, he names and announces what they've determined and decided. That's the first thing. The second thing, there's plenty of sinners who decided those things too, but Jesus doesn't treat them like this. 
So I, I think there's a prophetic element in what Jesus is doing here, speaking truth to power. That's important. And I can see it, like, I, can, I kind of like that for this chapter. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, look at Jesus calling on the status quo, like, and all this stuff. So the fact that he calls out the status quo and those in power, and he doesn't call out, you know, when we caught adultery or when it's tax cut. Like, they, they have heard it. Like, yeah. they don't need to be told how they're messed up in life because they know everyone yeah. has no one happy talk. Yeah. But these status quo people, no one ever says, hey, by the way, your temple practices is garbage. Yeah. You know, they've never heard that. So, <laughs> I can ask other like, what was it? They were like, hey, when you see that, it's like, so-and-so, you're, you're, you're insulting us, too. And Jesus is like, well, I haven't got to you guys yet. Right, like, right, right. Yeah, so those are, those are the two things I notice about this. I, I would say that my, my experience is we want to go to these chapters and verses to justify our animus towards other people. Right. We want to recruit the Jesus of Matthew 24 to validate our calling out of whomever in our life. And I'd, I'll just say, uh, hey, there's a time and a place to name for people what their decided, what their decisions mean. Um, but let's, let's ruthlessly love them and lay our lives down for them for years first. And uh, my personal conviction is I reserve this kind of straight speech for people who have power and are hurting people without it. So a poor white person who's, who's not in, you know, who doesn't have any sort of institutional or social power, like... I'm not going to call it their junk unless they're abusing their children or their wife or their husband. Uh, it also means that, like, well, I have lots of convictions about this. It means I'm much more quickly to name, like, uh, people, who, people who have power and their sins. I'm much more quickly to, to name that explicitly than I am people without power who also have sin. Jesus tends to weep over the powerless. And he tends to have a prophetic critique of the powerful. I kind of start there as my starting spot. All right, we're going to proclaim this too. Carlo, we can talk more about that too. It's a great question. I think it's a really good question. I mean, I think Paul does the same thing. We joked about the dogs earlier, but you know... Paul, Paul writes in Philippians, watch out for the dogs. You know? Um, and I, I, I have very similar thoughts to what Sean shared about Jesus when I do about Paul. There's instances where Paul is not loving. In fact, when he actually says, I'm beside myself here, when he tells people to cut off their marriage back. You know, like there's just, there's a sense in which Paul isn't, Paul isn't the example of Jesus is for us. But there's a third, a third thing here is like Paul's riding across hundreds and hundreds of miles, giving a letter to people he may never see again. And it's more of a get out of the house of fire burning, or the house is burning, get out of the house, the fire burning the house. And so there's a different speech act that's needed for um, different speech act needed for an emergency than there is for a relationship. Like our culture 
always wants to make something into an emergency. Yes. So therefore, that justifies whatever means that we're doing. Totally. So, like, I had to be violent, whether in my words or my actions, because the house is on fire. And it's like, the house isn't on fire all the time. Totally. Yeah, we're going to talk about anxiety uh, during Eucharist, and how anxiety uh, pushes us to care about things more than we ought to, and in the wrong ways. And that's one of, I think, I think anxiety drives us into ungodlike ways of trying to help. Well, fear is one of the powerful anti-love motivators in our world. Alright, friends. Dig. The practice of digging. With com- we'll, uh, we'll, we'll summarize these five C's as compassionate curiosity. Holds open the space for love, teaches us and others that God cares about it more than we do, and we all witness the revelation of what the Spirit's doing. Thank you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's get ready for Eucharist together.